This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, hello. This is The Hash. We have editor-at-large Christine Canada. We have investigative reporter extraordinaire Anna in the studio. And I'm just a guy named George. It's good to see the two of you. For those of you who are listening to us via the Coindesk Podcast Network, thank you for joining. It's like Coindesk TV, but for your ears only. So let's get right to it. Our first story, and I think our second story is from Christy. Go ahead. Yeah, so the first story is kind of goofy, but it's fun. And that's what we're here for on The Hash. There is a little bit of a feud happening. So there's a big conference happening right now in Denver, East Denver, and there are some side events that happen. One of the side events is hosted by Pontum, a crypto wallet startup backed by the Aptos blockchain. And they are hosting the MoveCon conference later this week in the Aptos house on the sidelines of East Denver. So the focus of this event is Move, M-O-V-E, Move. And that's a coding language that Facebook engineers originally developed for the defunct project Diem. It's also the base language used by both Aptos and Sui. These are two blockchains that emerged in part from Facebook's defunct stablecoin project. So there were invitations and then disinvitations to this little event. And of course, going to events is all about going to the side parties. And well, there were disinvitations. So the Sui Foundation is now not going to be attending MoveCon on March 3rd. And they're kind of annoyed by this because obviously, you know, Pontum is a uh, wallet started up backed by the Aptos blockchain. And now the rival move platform, Sui, is not allowed to go. So what's the, what's the big deal between these two? Aptos's implementation of move uses an address centric model and it works closely with blockchain networks. And it involves two ledgers, and there's like a lot of techie stuff, but so they have an address-centric model, whereas SUI's move implementation uses an object-centric model. So that means tokens and smart contracts and NFTs are displayed as objects and makes the ownership of particular things uh, really explicit. It's a potatoes-potatoes kind of thing, (laughs) but some potatoes are better than potatoes, apparently. And this is causing some stress. So... Here we go. Does anyone have anything they want to say about this little drama, Anna? I want to just say I love how savagely, Christy, you stress the word defunct, (laughs) talking about Facebook's previously like very hyped blockchain project, which used to be Libra, then it was DM, then it was totally abandoned. And it's funny that, you know, I I think these days you need to really remind people what these projects are, you know, like what is Aptos, what is SUI, you know, not not many people have been paying attention what's going on with them. And it just illustrates, you know, how much the personalities and big names play, you know, how, how big is their role in crypto, which is supposedly decentralized and like, you know, authority less and so on. Yeah, I love how this drama is very nerdy, right? You're talking about a design choice versus an account system or an object-based system. That's ridiculous, right? And But we love the drama, right? And I'll take it to the logical extreme that I think Anna was kind of suggesting there. This is why we need decentralized and neutral money and neutral systems, because even me, a so-called reasonable person, 
might have some sort of discriminatory thought in my stupid little head. And because of that, I can easily be corrupted. I, George, can think of many, many people who I don't want to be invited to a conference or a conference side event that, that I'm attending. And I can think of many people that probably wouldn't want me to be invited to a certain conference or a certain side event. But that shouldn't matter, right? Isn't that the point of all of this? Even if they've never done anything to me ever, or I've never done anything to them ever, just because they decide they want an object program language or a account-based program language, I don't even know if what I'm saying makes sense, but come on, guys, you're rejects from the DM project anyway. You know, you know what it's like to be rejected. You know what it's like to be disinvited, uninvited. Come on. Are they really going to uninvite people just because someone else said that you should uninvite someone? If anything, don't you want the fireworks to fly? Bring everyone. We should invite Roger Ver to the, the Bitcoin conference, right? Let's do that. Why not? Well, the thing is also, Move is a language that is not exactly, you know, popular. It's not like everybody's doing it. These are two projects, the two biggest projects that are using Move. And the whole project is about Move. And you're eliminating basically half of the Move developers from showing up. So it's really not a very, it's not an inclusive little program at all. And I think that's part of the problem that you get with some rival projects. And, you know, even in Bitcoin, where you need to have the diversity of voices and you need to have the developers coming together in order to actually make things work. That's how things develop is when you have conflicting views all coming together and sharing. So yeah, George? Yeah, to that, right? If you think your, your idea is better than another person's idea, just silencing that other voice is not the way to do it in this new system, right? Let's have a conversation about it. Let me convince everyone else that I'm right and we can start moving forward with my idea. Silencing your, it's not even critics. It's just silencing someone else who has a different idea than you is sort of the antithesis of what this is all supposed to be about. So anyway. Yeah. And, and silencing one, competition. I mean, really, yeah, it's, exactly. I think these are competing layers. So, you know, you're, you're looking at, at taking out your competition by disinviting them. And, and that's just a bad look. But yeah. anyway, speaking of things that are developing, oh my goodness. So Lido, Lido is doing some major code rewrites and this is a very big deal. So what is Lido? Lido is, it's, it's a staking platform for Ethereum and it's a pool. It holds a lot, a lot, a lot of Ether in its platform. So the staking sector across blockchains has a total value locked of 14.03 billion, making it the second biggest sector in the crypto space, surpassing decentralized lending and borrowing. So liquid staking is massive. And Lido on just Ethereum and no other blockchain controls more than 65% of crypto's total liquid staking sector. It commands 37.7% of all Ether in Ethereum staking contract, according to Etherscan. And what's it doing? It is rewriting its code. And everybody is voting on the new upgrades and the new updates. So on Tuesday, the protocol opened a snapshot vote on its version two upgrade, which includes a staking router to ease onboarding of different validator subsets. So it's going to unlock experimentation and diversification of approaches to node operators. So it's essentially going to allow for more permissionless node operators and onboarding different types of node operators onto the platform. 
The second element of the V2 upgrade will allow users to redeem Lido's flagship staked Ether tokens for the underlying Ether tokens once the Shanghai upgrade happens. So people are going to be able to get their Ether out, essentially. The upgrade will bring a significant rewrite to Lido's on-chain code and off-chain code. And it's being audited by like seven different auditors. But if anything goes wrong in this, that is a lot of staked ether that is, you know, up for grabs to uh, say bad actors or for things to go wrong. So this vote is going to be massively important. Anybody else concerned about this story? I think any DAO vote is, you know, also interesting uh, in a sense of uh, how much drama it brings. I would be curious to see if there are any ongoing contentions in the community about this upgrade and if there are any like fighting camps for or against certain changes. Don't know much about this project and the coming voting, but would be interesting to see how smoothly this vote goes. More nerd tech well, drama. Apparently, I love it. according to the article, Sage Young, I believe, has checked out the voting status so far and it's nearly unanimous. Everybody's on board. So That's there's boring. a lot of confidence. There is a lot of confidence in, in these upgrades. Yeah, I think that makes sense though, right? The, the code needs to be rewritten to make Lido live up to the claim of what it is, right? Liquid staking platform should allow you to unstake your ETH. It's actually probably the reason I'm quote unquote worried is that it's the fundamentally important part of ETH's new proof of stake network, right? If you can't withdraw or unstake your stake, then you can't vote with your stake or not vote with your stake, as it is claimed to do, right? If you're not able to exit the network, if that is something you want to do, you know, that's a technical shortcoming that could actually be a big problem. And especially since I didn't realize that Lido had this much of the staked ether hold. Like this is very a very centralizing thing. It makes a ton of sense, right? I don't have 32 ETH to stake, so I want to only want to stake one. It's wild to me how much of it they do have though, because it seems like a pretty simple idea. I mean, can you just fork Lido and make another staking platform? Is that possible? I don't know. Is that, is that even a problem? I don't know if that's a thing that, uh, I mean, there are <laughs> other staking pools, but this one is by far the largest. It kind of got out of the gate early and people have just been staking on it. The point of Lido originally was to be an alternative to centralized forces. That was actually, there was a concern at the beginning that only large companies like, say, Coinbase, Binance would stake their Ether and it would be concentrated in those large players. So Lido was part of the decentralization movement where average people would be able to just stake their Ether in a decentralized pool. So it's kind of ironic that it now holds, you know, almost 38% of the staked Ether which, you know, on one hand is, okay, great, whatever. Um, there is that decentralized staking pool option, but it is in a way centralized. I think one of the upgrades of the node upgrade is something that is going to help with decentralization because it's going to allow for more, a larger variety of node operators to join the network more easily with less friction. And so that's, that's a good thing. And people are excited about that. So it has it. It does. I mean, the only thing that's concerning is that it does require a massive code rewrite. 
Yeah, and, and also if you're worried about, this is a very cynical take, but if you're worried about the centralized players having a lot of say in this network, there's nothing stopping them from going into, into Lido either, right? You can have their own staking network and then they can stake their own ETH into Lido. And so they can just put their will on the network wherever they, they might, so. That would be malicious. That, that would require an awful lot of ether in order to do that. True. It's kind of like the proof of work argument where you could mine over everyone else, but also that take a lot of effort, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. So the former accounting team of FTX US Auditor Armanino, the members of its digital asset practice have departed and formed a new startup called The Network Firm to carry on the business of providing audits at the stations and related work for crypto clients. I can only imagine how hard it will be to win business when your pitch deck lists one of the largest alleged frauds in the history of the free world on it as experience. But we love a good underdog story, don't we guys? Go see Biscuit. What Armanino was providing might be important for what seems to be a relatively good actor in crypto is for someone like Kraken, who has done proof of reserves and used them as used Armanino as part of their attestations for a while now. I think this shines a light on one of crypto's most difficult bear market problems. Who's going to do our taxes? Who's going to audit us? And who is going to be our banking partner, right? There are fewer problems when it feels like everyone and their mother is getting rich. But when everyone is losing their shirt and every other company is going bankrupt, and then there's a couple of frauds happening, well, maybe we should just avoid the reputational risk for a few hundred thousand dollars of fees. So I'm not quite sure if there's anything one of you want to latch onto there, but I want to throw it to Anna first, put her on the spot. Well, I would say it's, it's, it's funny that, you know, we, we're talking uh, all the time that, you know, crypto is going more and more mainstream and there is uh, now much more attention from the traditional finance to, to this industry. But still, you know, the, the crypto companies, even those who are considered, you know, the most legit are still struggling to get you know a normal uh, financial audit from the from the industry's leaders and that's you know it's it's kind of a vicious circle right the, the company cannot secure a normal audit so they cannot prove their business is legit and when something bad happens then these auditing companies are like uh oh we're like we're not dealing with this like we're not going to do any business with these guys at all because it's so, you know, it, it looks so dangerous. Our reputation can get tainted. So again, there is no like reputable audit. And, you know, at this point, I'm thinking maybe it's so hard to audit a big crypto exchange uh, or God forbid some DeFi protocol that all these big auditing firms, not only they are worried to get their reputation tainted when something crashes, something they audited crashes, maybe they don't have enough competence to, to really audit these systems, which are so complex and so hard to really, you know, kind of deconstruct what's really inside of them. Well, yeah. one of the problems I think that you're getting that you get with this is the fact that it's such a technologically 
liquid or, you know, changing uh, environment, the goalposts move all the time with the technology. And trying to find somebody with experience in this is hard simply because it's all brand new and it's hard. I mean, this is hard stuff to manage. Um, And it reminds me at the bottom of the article, they talk about how it's going to be difficult for this company to gain credibility because it is so new and has so little background. Well, that reminds me of sort of the joke on Twitter right now of, you know, people who are advertising for positions and they want people with 10 years in DeFi (laughs) or 10 years building Web3. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, it didn't exist 10 years ago. You can't have 10 years of experience doing this. And any company that has had 10 years or 20 or 30 years of experience in auditing companies, well, they haven't had that experience auditing crypto companies and auditing exchanges. And that's just, I think, what you're going to get when you're trying to audit a brand new sector like this. George? Everything you guys have said sounds exactly right. Breaking that vicious cycle that Anna was talking about. It sounds like the only way to really do that is to go public, become a publicly traded company, and then get some reputable firm on your side. But going public is so hard and usually, at least in my view, pretty unadvisable for most companies. It's not like, hey, I want to go public, and then you can just go public. It's this big undertaking, which in and of itself requires an auditing firm too, and requires an investment bank to help place the, the equity. It is, it's beyond a vicious cycle. Like We're in a different pyramid. These companies are playing in a completely different pyramid in their vicious cycle, and they're not even up here where they want to be and you know, get the Deloitte's, KPMG's, the big fours of the world to, to come on with them. It is, uh, I don't know how they win. I don't think you can win in this situation. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a tough one. Yep. Yeah, too bad. <laughs> you could just stick with Bitcoin. Anyway, we can get our next story. Anna, you want to get us there? Yeah, and talking about the actual publicly traded companies, meaning one and only publicly traded company in crypto, Coinbase. Brian Armstrong uh, went out with an op-ed on CNBC talking about how America should embrace crypto if it wants to stay the geopolitical power it has been. Quote, the U.S. has long been the leader in global economic and political affairs, but its dominance is being challenged by the other global superpowers. China, for example, has made significant progress in digital currencies and has already launched its own digital yuan. So Brian Armstrong is telling us if America wants to keep its leadership, better embrace crypto, better make some good regulatory framework for it, better, you know, issue a CBDC, a a digital dollar, just go with it. There is a lot to unpack here, uh, but I wonder what do you guys think about this whole geopolitical argument that, you know, embracing crypto can make a country stronger or like more powerful and what it does for the industry itself, you know, bringing this kind of argument into the conversation. I'm not a geopolitical expert by any stretch. But it feels a little bit out there to say that the reason that China will become a dominant economic player over the U.S. is because of crypto. That seems a little bit misplaced. We see the most traded and used asset and besides Bitcoin. And actually, this might not be true, but the most used asset is USDT or stablecoin equivalents for the U.S. dollar. Whether we like it or not, 
The U.S. dollar is the dominant currency. There is U.S. dollar hegemony, whatever that big word means. And I don't think just because the digital yuan exists, where it's really a surveillance coin, where it has you know these timestamps on it, where you can only spend it within the next two weeks or else you lose it. I don't think that in and of itself is going to displace the U.S. as the big economic power. If anything, it's going to be our, our lack of onshore manufacturing and you know the fact that I don't know other countries are have better economies. They're growing faster than us. They're burning a lot of coal, so their their economy is growing like crazy. I I love crypto and I love Bitcoin. I love what this is all about. But I really think this is just a public company CEO talking his book, trying to make what he does sound more important than he is. And that sounds like I hate crypto, but I think it's true. Christy, what do you think? I think that there is a segment of the world economy that is going to be driven by crypto markets. And whether or not it is a significant part of that economy is, you know, whatever. But if you want to win the crypto market war, if your economy is going to have a strong presence in crypto markets, then I think Armstrong's got a point. And I want to just, uh, because all three of us are from the Consensus Magazine uh, part of the Coindesk product here, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to an excellent opinion that Coindesk's uh, Consensus Magazine published by Noel Acheson. And it is titled, The Future of Crypto Markets Will Be Driven by Developments in the East. And one of the things she points out is what's going on in Hong Kong. So earlier this week, Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission published the proposed text of its upcoming uh, crypto regulation. And it's actually opening up, we're looking on whether or not to open up to retail investors and what types of protection should be put in place and is having discussions upon the range of approved assets, liquid tokens. It is driving a conversation and it's looking at ways of improving access to the crypto markets for its people. Now, the interesting part of this is that China watches what goes on in Hong Kong, obviously very, very closely. And China seems to be okay with whatever it is that Hong Kong is doing right now, meaning that there could be a way that this could be how China decides to go as well. And if it starts opening up to uh, crypto assets as well, that could be a really big part of the market that it decides to keep. So that will impact the global geopolitical everything the way that that develops. So something to keep your eye on, George. Want to take us out? Yeah, and I totally agree with both of you guys. You guys are awesome. But that's all the time we have for today. That's Christy. That's Anna. I'm George. We're The Hash. And check us out tomorrow. And check out Coindesk.com for your crypto news and smart takes on Consensus Magazine. Anyway, till then, bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 